Have you ever been in conversation with uh, another member of the church, assuming you're a member of the Lord's Church and you are uh, talking in conversation about the church and something comes up about a particular congregation, perhaps the congregation where one of the participants in the conversation attends, and when the other hears the name of that congregation, the response is, oh, that is, that's a great congregation, that's a great church, great church. You probably have been in that uh, situation, but we need to consider something today about, about that, uh, that assessment. Upon what basis do people make such assessments about, about congregations? Uh, how, do they, uh, how do they determine in their mind that, oh yes, uh, such and such is a, great, uh, is a great congregation? Is it because they, uh, they may have um, a large number in attendance? Uh, maybe they have a, uh, a preacher who is uh, particularly dynamic, widely known, or uh, whatever the case may be. Maybe it's because they're involved in uh, a great many uh, evangelistic efforts or efforts even within the congregation. All sorts of assessments could certainly be made, and, and um, the assessment uh, that a congregation or the church is a great church can be made on various uh, bases. We need to ask a question today about the true greatness of any church, any congregation, as I use that word church in the local sense. Is there, is there a way for us to have a, a standard by which we could truly say such and such is a great congregation? I believe there is. I believe there is. And I believe we find that standard in the Jerusalem church right after it was established on Pentecost following the resurrection and ascension of Christ, and when the keys to the kingdom, as promised by the Lord to Peter and the other apostles, were first used, I believe we find the church that comes into existence on that occasion, that church could truly be characterized as a great church. If you just simply read with me the verses that follow verse 41 of Acts 2, and that is where those who gladly received his word, verse 41, were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Then if you look at verses uh, 42 through 47, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I believe in these verses we find the characteristics of a truly great church, one worthy of emulation by any congregation among us, today. What are those characteristics? Let me suggest there's seven of them that we could note here, and as we've uh, said in uh, times past, seven is a number in Scripture that represents completeness or wholeness, the sacred number which represents perfection or completeness. I believe we have in these seven characteristics a complete picture of, of a great church, and I believe we can learn much from looking at the church at Jerusalem from that standpoint. First of all, first of all, the church at Jerusalem was a grounded church. 
A great church because it was grounded. Look at verse 42 again. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The two words continued steadfastly are translated from one word in the original language of the New Testament, and that word indicates a devotion. In fact, some translations render this verse, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. Words to that effect. They devoted themselves. They continued steadfastly. And also it is suggested here that the steadfastness indicates that they were determined to devote themselves to the word of the, the apostles, the teaching of the apostles, despite anything that came their way. Because we know that persecution arose in the early church. This was not a situation where the church at Jerusalem uh, was established uh, on a bed of roses and then uh, continued on that bed of roses for an indefinite period of time. No, we know that not many chapters after the one in which we are looking at these verses about this great church, we see a great persecution arising against the church at Jerusalem. They were scattered abroad, and they went everywhere preaching the word. What prompted the preaching of the word upon being scattered by persecution? What we're reading right here prompted it. They were grounded. They were grounded. Their roots went deeply into the teaching of the apostles. And no church can be a great church that is not grounded in the word of God and grounded to the extent that it will remain so despite persecution. And that's what we have here. We talked about in Bible class this morning the fact that there are those who are capitulating to the pressures around them, that is, those in the church. There are congregations that are going astray because of the pressure around them to be more inclusive and less exclusive. The Jerusalem church did not yield to that kind of temptation. I do not doubt that they could have uh, avoided a great deal, if not all, of the persecution that arose against them had they simply abandoned the apostles' doctrine when that persecution uh, presented itself. Uh, they could have indeed compromised, they could have apostatized, and yet there's not one word in this text about any apostasy that occurred in the church here at Jerusalem at this time because they were grounded. And the only way to be grounded is in the apostles' doctrine. That is, in the teaching and the instruction of the apostles. Is that a possibility for us today since we have no apostles living among us? Well, of course it is, and we all know, I'm sure that it is, because we have the teaching of the apostles. They were guided by the Holy Spirit into all truth, not part, not some, not most, but all truth, and we have it before us today. But that's the key. It is before us today. Is it in us today? Is it in us today as it should be in us today in order for us to be as grounded as the Lord's people today as they were as the Lord's people then? That's the key. And that's where the characteristics of a great church have to begin with being grounded. And then there's a characteristic, a second one, that flows logically from that first of being grounded, and that is they were a growing church. They were grounded, and any church that is grounded as they were grounded will be a growing church. Now, let me add a caveat there. I don't mean by the word growing that numerical growth will always occur where a church is grounded in the faith. 
No, indeed. Because that is not always what follows. Now, I believe that some growth will occur numerically where a church is grounded, but that's going to vary. That's going to vary. Because you can't, you can't determine the soil that is around you. You can't determine that that soil is going to be good. We'd all like to have good fertile soil, spiritually speaking, around us, but we don't have any control over that. And so there are obviously, there are obviously areas in our world today where there's a greater hunger and thirst for biblical teaching than there is right here in Chattanooga, Tennessee, or in this area of Chattanooga, Tennessee even. I could go to uh, Africa, as I have been privileged to do in times past, and I could preach and teach as others who were on that trip with me or a trip with me uh, could preach and teach for hours, and there would be people who would come and sit on logs for hours to hear the gospel, to hear the truth preached, and many obeyed it. And that is still happening in various parts of the world, and it is not happening here in this country as it is happening in other parts of the world. That has been the case. That will doubtless be the case because the soil differs in various places. And therefore, the soil differs, the receptivity is different, so the growth is going to be different as well in terms of the numerical growth rate. But I can guarantee you another kind of growth that will always follow when the church is grounded. And that is spiritual growth. That is spiritual growth. We will grow spiritually when we are continuing steadfastly, when we're grounded in the apostles' doctrine. There will be spiritual growth. There has to be. And by the same token, by way of contrast, where there is that uh, lack of determination to be grounded in the truth and to feed upon the Word of God, there will be no growth spiritually in those individuals who do not apply themselves to uh, being grounded. If I am not determined to be grounded in the faith, I will not grow. Remember what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In his first epistle he said, as newborn babes, 1 Peter 2.2, 2, desire the pure milk of the word that you may what? That you may grow thereby. Anyone who's grounded in this book will grow in this book. Anyone who applies himself to this book as he or she should, will grow spiritually. Now, if we all do that, if we all do that with the same level of determination and devotion that the church at Jerusalem had at this time about which we're reading, tell me there will not inevitably be some numerical growth in that situation. I believe that it will occur. But as I said, that varies. But spiritual growth is assured is absolutely assured where there is grounding. And so the first characteristic of being grounded in order to be a great church is followed logically by growing in knowledge and in grace or favor with God. And no doubt some numerical growth will occur as people apply themselves to reaching out with that word. But there's a third characteristic of this great church about which we're reading at Jerusalem, and that is that it was a giving church. There's no question about that as you read the verses that we have already read. Now all who believed, verse 44, were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. When the need arose, they met the need. Also, if you go back to verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. 
And there are times in Scripture where that word fellowship has reference to giving, in the sense of giving as we have been prospered. Of course, fellowship means literally a joint participation, but sometimes in Scripture it is confined to the joint participation monetarily, that is, the giving of our means. And the word uh, fellowship is used in that sense uh, at various times in Scripture. Let me give you just uh, one of those occasions. In the book of Romans, in chapter 15 of Romans, at verse 26, this same word that is translated fellowship here in verse 42 of Acts 2 is used concerning a contribution. Verse 26, For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution. There's that same word that's translated fellowship here in Acts 2.42. A certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. So there have been those who have, have at least suggested that uh, the fellowship here in Acts 2.42 is a reference to their uh, giving. But certainly there are times when it has a much broader meaning, anything in which they shared or anything in which we share together as members of the body of Christ. We're in fellowship in those things. But giving is one of them. But we certainly know, based on the verses we looked at in verses 44 and 45, that indeed these people were a giving people. They were a giving church. Fourth characteristic that we see about this great church at Jerusalem is that they were a gathering church. They loved to come together. They loved together. So continuing daily, verse 46, with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple. They looked forward, obviously, to every opportunity they had to come together and to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ. They knew how precious that bond was that they had with each other, and they did not ask, when do we have to get together again? It was, when do we get to get together again? When will we be privileged to see our brothers and sisters in Christ again? And that's the attitude of a great church. A great church is a gathering church. Those who are part of a great church don't ask, where in the Bible does it mention Wednesday night? I don't believe that there were members of the church here at Jerusalem who were asking the question, you know, a lot of you people are getting together every day here in the temple. Where does it say that? <laughs> where is that in the apostles' doctrine? Where did the apostles say that? I don't see that attitude, do you? Not at all. And we must not have that attitude in the Lord's church today. But we need to love and appreciate one another in the fellowship that we have with one another to the extent that we want to be with these people more than we want to be with anybody else on earth at every opportunity. This church was a gathering church. They gathered, they gathered to worship God in spirit and in truth. They gathered to break bread, verse 42. That is a reference to the Lord's Supper, obviously. They gathered together to pray. They were a gathering church. And something else they were. Down at verse 46, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. They were a glad church. They were a glad church. And you know what prompted that gladness? 
I believe it was gratitude. They were a grateful church. They were grateful and glad. They were a glad church because their gladness flowed from their gratitude. Their gratitude for what they had received. They did not lose sight of the greatest blessing that anyone could ever be afforded in this life, and that is hope for the next life. And it goes back to their being glad in verse 41. They're glad here in verse 46 because they gladly received the word they heard in verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. Why were they gladly receiving his word? Because they had been filled to this point with guilt. The deepest sense of guilt that one could possibly experience because they became convicted in their hearts that they had crucified the very Christ, the Son of God. And having crucified the Christ, they wanted some relief from the burden of that guilt. And they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? That is, what shall we do to be saved? And Peter said, repent. You already believe, obviously. He didn't mention belief because they, the question they asked was indicative of their belief, as we've often said. So he said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then those who, what? Gladly received his word. Why were they glad? Because now they had been given the way out of their guilt. And guilt turned to gladness. And they were baptized, about 3,000 of them. And they didn't get sad right after they'd been made glad. And they didn't get sad because someone said something ugly to them about their Christianity because their gladness was firmly in place because they were grounded and growing and giving and gathering to encourage one another and strengthen one another. And their gladness was a perpetual gladness. And they ate their food with gladness. They were so grateful for everything they had received in terms of the spiritual blessings that were theirs, including the material blessings of being privileged to have food to eat, they gave God the thanks from their hearts that were filled to overflowing with gratitude for what He had done. And that leads us to the sixth characteristic of this great church, Characteristic of any great church today will be that it must be a glorifying church. See verse 47? Praising God. What does it mean to praise God? Brother Tom in his uh, fine prayer mentioned this. Praising God, glorifying God. That's our whole purpose for being. That's our whole purpose for existing on this earth is to praise God or to glorify God, to extol God. Him as being truly wonderful and awesome in His majesty and in His mercy and in every attribute in which He is absolutely perfect in all attributes. We're to give Him glory. And the church that is a great church is a glorifying church. And that's not just one that is saying we love God. It's one that's grounded and growing and giving and gathering and grateful and glad then it can be characterized as glorifying by doing what God said to do within the church. How many of these people thought, do you think, 
Well, you know, I can glorify God without the church here at Jerusalem. I can, uh, I can glorify God without coming together to worship God. I can glorify God without the church. I don't need the church. No, that was not their mindset. Because they understood what Paul would later write in Ephesians 3.21. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus forever and ever. To him be glory, where? In the church, in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Ephesians 3.21. A great church is a glorifying church, a church that recognizes that it is the culmination, the church, of everything God had in mind long before any other dispensation was brought into being, the patriarchal or the mosaic. It was the Christian age that God had in mind. It was the church in the Christian age that God had in mind. And to be a great church, we must be a glorifying church, recognizing that the only way we can give glory to Him is by being a faithful part of His church. And what do you think normally follows as we look at the final characteristic of this great church? When a church is grounded, when a congregation is growing, is giving, is gathering, is grateful and glad and, and glorifying God as He desires to be glorified according to his word, then is it any wonder that we read, praising God, and here it is, having favor with all the people. Good report. That's the final characteristic of this great church at Jerusalem. They had a good report of those outside. Those who were thinking straight could look at these people and say, there's something, there's something different about these people. And if they were thinking straight, they could say, there's something attractive here about these people. These people, these people are glad people. These people are grateful people. These people love each other. These people are, are very, very different. Very, very different. And so must we be if we're to be characterized as a great church. Such and such is a great church. Church over here is a great church. How do we know that? We can know that if it's grounded, growing in the faith, giving and gathering, glad based upon gratitude and glorifying and of good report from those who are thinking straight. Those are the seven characteristics I believe we have here in this great text of a great church. And therefore, I would urge all of us here at White Oak to make sure we do everything we can as individuals to contribute to the whole in such a way as to have others in conversation about White Oak. Oh, you're a member at White Oak. That's a great church. That's a great church. You can be a part of a great church. You can be a part of the church of the Lord this very morning in the only way that one can possibly be added to it, just as we've read these were added to it on that first Pentecost after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And that's be, that is by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, repenting of your sins, confessing Him to be the Christ, and then to be buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins. Those were added 
to the kingdom on that day by doing the very things I've just outlined. And people have been being added to the kingdom since that day in that same way. And that way will never change until the Lord comes again. And so if you would be a part of the church for which Jesus shed his blood, it will only be accomplished through your belief that leads you to repent, confess Christ, and to be baptized. And the only way to come home to that church, if you've departed in waywardness from the truth, from the apostles' doctrine, from the word of God, and need to come home in a public way because you have left in a public way, your sin is known in a public way, then restore your influence and restore your soul by confessing and by praying to God as we pray with you and for you if you need to come home. As we stand to sing, will you come?